it's Jay, appointed by Ray, my first day. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Uh, and if you are new here, um, you're in good company, because like I said, I'm new here as well. Anyways, all that aside, uh, we'll jump into today's passage. We are in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Uh, I'll be reading and using the ESV version uh, going forward. I did use the NIV for a while, uh, but I grew up with the ESV, so yeah. We'll just stick with that for the time being. Um, so the ESV translation, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. And the word of God reads, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for another Sabbath. Uh, we thank you for this FLM community that we can sing praises to magnify your son and celebrate uh, what he has accomplished for us, to celebrate the king. Uh, and Lord, we pray in this moment that you would allow your spirit to ready our hearts to experience an encounter with this king through his word. Father, as we look to today's passage, there are some concepts that are shared in this passage that are revealed to us by Jesus that might be a bit difficult to understand. Uh, certain concepts that might be very foreign to what we understand things to be. But Lord, we pray by the spirit of God that you would illumine our minds and our hearts for clarity, understanding, and transformation. Lord, I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I am also using an iPad to preach for the first time in a long time. I'm not very tech-savvy, so if this shuts down, um, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble, but we'll see how we go. Now, to give a recap of what we went through so far in the Gospel of Mark, um, if you recall, in chapter 1, uh, Jesus began what would be a three-year ministry, and he would begin by undergoing a baptism at the hands of his cousin John the Baptist. And if you remember, Pastor Eddie shared that the reason for this baptism was so that Jesus could fulfill all righteousness. Uh, Jesus then continues on and calls his first disciples, and he travels throughout Capernaum and Galilee, and he preaches sermons, he preaches God's word, he casts out demons, he heals those with incurable diseases. We saw that when Jesus preached, he preached with a different kind of authority to what anyone had ever heard before. We saw that Jesus exercised a different kind of authority when he healed people and casted out demons. But we also saw Jesus demonstrate a unique kind of authority 
because he forgave sins. If you remember the paralytic man that was lowered through the roof by his uh, four friends, Jesus exercises a divine authority by forgiving his sins, not by praying to the Father on behalf of him, but by the forgiving his sins by his own authority. And then we got to see Jesus call Matthew, the tax collector, or uh, Mark's gospel refers to him as Levi. If you see Levi, it's Matthew. Um, Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his apostles. And as we mentioned, I think it was two weeks ago, not last week, Pastor Paul preached last week, two weeks ago, um, that Matthew, you know, as much as Jesus, TV, Jesus shows and movies try to depict Matthew as a victim of society, as like, you know, that poor guy that's been outcasted and has no friends, uh, we, we saw that Matthew really wasn't a victim. Uh, Matthew was really the New Testament version of the modern-day mafia. And we also saw last week that Jesus drew significant criticism for participating in a great feast. And this feast was attended by people from the organized crime world. Think of it like the Godfather, this big table of mafia figures. Jesus was sitting there with them and eating with them. Now, in today's passage, the context and the setting is exactly the same as the feast with Matthew. Um, it's still set at the home of Matthew, the tax collector. Everyone is still eating. And if you'll notice in the preceding passages, people, as, like, as Jesus continues his ministry, people come and ask Jesus questions. For example, uh, when Jesus heal, uh, forgave the sins of the paralytic man being lowered from the roof, and they were like, well, how does this guy have authority to, to, to forgive sins? Only God has authority to forgive sins. Um, if you see through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus, he heals on the Sabbath a lot. Uh, and they ask him questions like, why does this guy heal and do these things on the Sabbath? And in today's passage, uh, there is a question that's asked again. Uh, they ask Jesus, after seeing him eat with these mafia figures, they ask why is Jesus eating with these tax collectors? Uh, and this time, you know, previously it was the scribes and the Pharisees that asked the question. Today, it's actually the people, the everyday regular Joes of Capernaum that asked this question. Because they're seeing Jesus and they're, they're seeing him eat with criminals. They're like, why is he eating with these spiritually unclean people? Now, the Jews at the time... Um, when they looked, or rather, they, they come to Jesus and they ask this question about fasting. Why does Jesus and his disciples not fast, but John the, John, John the Baptist and his disciples fasted, and the Pharisees fasted? Why, why, why isn't Jesus fasting? You know, we see you know, John the Baptist, his disciples fasting, praying, committing themselves to God. But we're looking at Jesus right now. And he's having a lavish feast. He's not just eating like a few appetizers. It's not like a few canopies. He's just consuming, just eating like Homer Simpson, just eating with his disciples. What is going on? Now, um, in order to understand today's passage, we have to understand what fasting actually is. Um, the Jews at the time considered fasting as an act of piety. Uh, it was an important part of their religious tradition. Uh, whenever people fasted, they kind of viewed fasting as this means of receiving blessing from God, receiving gifts from God, but also as a means of drawing 
closer to God. And so the people of Capernaum were really accustomed to seeing the Pharisees fast and the disciples of John the Baptist fast because it kind of was like a demonstration of where your heart was at. But so far, like I mentioned, they haven't seen Jesus fast very much at all. They haven't seen Jesus' disciples fast at all. In fact, they've seen quite the opposite. Like I mentioned, they're here witnessing Jesus eating with a, eating with a bunch of rich mafia figures, like, I don't know, lobster, whatever it was that they were eating. There was a lot of food, and they were just consuming it in front of them. And I think this probably would have naturally raised a lot of question marks for them about the legitimacy of Jesus' ministry. Like, if you think about it for a moment, like, you guys have met Pastor Alvin, the guy that called me Jadis Lee Scariot. Uh, he's actually my best friend. Uh, he preached here a few weeks ago. He's my best friend. Uh, but let's say that you got to know Pastor Alvin better. And we both had, you know, camps and events and retreats for our ministries coming up. And you, you, you compared our approach in our preparation for these camps. If you were to look at Pastor Alvin, him fasting, praying, just physically just destroying his body to cry out to God on behalf of his congregation, that they would experience greater and greater manifestations of the Spirit's power, greater transformation by the hand of God. If you saw him really just even forgetting to eat because he was so committed to praying to God, on behalf of his congregation. And then you see me. I love a good burger. Um, in the lead up to all the events and retreats, instead of seeing Pastor Jay fast, uh, you see me going for my staple meal, uh, a large Big Mac meal, six nuggets with sweet and sour sauce, an Oreo McFlurry and an apple pie. You might be like, all right, okay, that, as a one-off, yeah, okay, maybe he might do that. But then if you saw that this was like a behavioral pattern, that every time there's an event coming up, Pastor Alvin is fasting, he's committing himself to God, he's sacrificing time, going to, you know, a Maru, house of prayer, spending all night in prayer in preparation for an event. And then you see me, at, see me, local Maccas, every day. You might not confront me, but you would have thoughts, wouldn't you? At the very least, you'd compare Jay with Alvin. You're like, what, what's going on in his head? I probably would as well. If, if I saw someone, like a, a ministry uh, pastor that was like, doesn't fast, doesn't pray on behalf of his congregation, just continually eats while all these other pastors in the church are praying and fasting, I'd probably be like, well, where, where is this guy at spiritually? And it's the same thing here. The people of Capernaum notice that John the Baptist, his disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting and praying. And yet here is Jesus and his disciples at the home of Matthew, the tax collector, just eating like Homer Simpson. Just like, I don't know if you've... Is the Simpsons still on? I don't know. But if you've ever seen The Simpsons, you'll see this guy called Homer Simpson. His arms just move at a rapid pace, shoving food in his mouth. This is what they're seeing. And so they ask in verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, they're saying, look at these disciples of John the Baptist. Look at the disciples of the Pharisees. These guys are serious about their spirituality. 
They're fasting, they're praying so that they can receive greater blessings and gifts from God. They're pursuing every possible opportunity to draw closer to God. Jesus, why aren't we seeing your disciples do the same thing? And Jesus responds from verses 19 to 22 with a two-pronged response. Firstly, Jesus says in verses 19 to 20, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast on that day. Now, what does that mean? Uh, if you recall the people's understanding of what the purpose of fasting was, remember, it was to draw blessings from God. It was to draw gifts from God, and ultimately it was to draw closer to God. And if you bear this understanding in mind, this, this understanding of what the purpose of fasting is, then you have to conclude that it doesn't make sense for the disciples of Jesus to fast in this moment. Because what's the purpose of fasting when you have the incarnate Son of God next to you? to bestow blessing upon you? What's the point of fasting for a gift from God when you have the greatest gift from God, the Son of God himself, second person of the Trinity, reclining next to you? What's the point in fasting to try and draw closer to God when physically and relationally you have the Son of God reclining and eating next to you? There's not really any closer that you can get to someone than them sitting there next to you enjoying a meal together with you. It doesn't make sense for them to fast now. And that's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't make sense. The, the Son of God is here right now, the Son of Man, second person of the Trinity. But you know what? Jesus says there will come a time when fasting will be necessary because the bridegroom or Jesus is going to get taken away when he's snatched from them. And this signifies his arrest, his torture, and his eventual crucifixion. Now, I mentioned in verses 19 to 22 that it was a two-pronged response to their question. And as we covered in the first point or the first prong, Jesus explains that his disciples, unlike John's disciples and the Pharisees, they don't fast. His disciples don't fast because Jesus' physical presence is already among his disciples. It actually defeats the, you know, the whole purpose and point of fasting. Because why fast to get closer to God when God's already here? Now, the second prong in his response is this very unusual. He gives two analogies, two unusual analogies of garments and wineskin. Uh, verses 21 to 22 says that no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What does that mean? Uh, well, I don't know if you guys still live at home. Uh, I moved out in my mid-20s, I think, but... I used to do my own washing. And one thing I found is that when you get, when you buy new clothes, like fresh new clothes, and you wash them and you dry them, it 
the clothes tend to shrink a lot, uh, not a lot, like it shrinks a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you've ever bought a new shirt. Uh, I remember when I did my first laundry in my apartment by myself, when I was living by myself, I washed it and it shrunk and I thought, oh, like I was going to the gym at the time. I was like, maybe, maybe I'll see some results. <laughs> like the shirt suddenly, the sleeves feel a bit tighter. Um, but this will happen with the first wash. But then over the course of time, it won't really shrink anymore. It'll just stay that same size. But what Jesus is saying is that if there is a hole in an old garment that's been washed, it's not going to shrink anymore. It's already shrunk. If there's a hole in this garment and you try to patch it up with a piece of cloth from a new garment, whilst the old garment isn't going to shrink when you wash, wash it, the patch from the new cloth will shrink when you wash it. Wash it, rather. And when you do this, if you sew a new patch onto an old garment and you wash it, it's going to shrink and tear off, and it's going to make the original tear even worse. Now, the second analogy, when it comes to the wineskin, you might be wondering, what is a wineskin? Um, a wineskin, back in the day, was usually uh, a container made from the skins of goat or sheep, uh, and it really was like the, the, the olden day version of a wine bottle. Uh, they put wine in this wine skin, this, this animal skin container, and they would allow it to ferment. And so what would happen is they put fresh wine, new wine, into these wine skins. And as it would ferment, it would release carbon dioxide gas, gas and the wine skins would actually stretch under the pressure. Kind of like a balloon, as the wine would ferment. The thing about the wine skins, though, was that once the wine underwent this fermentation process and the wine skin got stretched, the skin would then become inflexible. It had become brittle over the course of time. And so no person in his right mind would take new wine and then grab an old wine skin and put it in the old wine skin because now, because it's already undergone the fermentation process, this old wine skin physically doesn't have the capacity to go through another fermentation process. What would actually happen is if you put new wine into an old wineskin because the skin had already stretched out and was already brittle, it would actually burst at the seams and you'd lose the wineskin and you'd lose the wine as well. So Jesus says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins and whilst this is foreign to us, the people listening back then would be like, yeah, that, duh. Uh, and now, well, that's all well and good. You know, we, we understand what, the, what, what he's talking about with the, with the garments and the wineskins. What what's this all about? Like, what, why? Like, they're, they're asking about fasting, and Jesus is talking about sewing and winemaking. Probably would have been a bit confusing, because they would have known Jesus. They would have thought, this guy's a carpenter by trade. He's not a tailor. He's not a winemaker. Why is he giving these analogies? And the reason is because Jesus is trying to explain something. He's trying to explain to the people that the purpose of his mission isn't to come and patch up something old. He didn't come to patch, fix, and improve an old system. But he's come to bring about something new. You see, for the Jews at the time, fasting was a religious tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with religious traditions, but the problem was that people had created traditions that went beyond what God had originally intended. 
They'd taken things really far to an extreme length that it distorted God's original intentions. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll find that one of the reasons that the Pharisees and the other Jews constantly butted heads with Jesus was because it bothered them that Jesus went against their traditions. And I'm careful, careful to say their traditions because I don't mean all traditions, but specifically man-made traditions that distorted God's original intention for a law or a rule that he decreed. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find, for instance, that the Jews take exception. Like I mentioned earlier, they take exception to Jesus healing on the Sabbath because it went against their man-made traditions. It bothered them that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners because it went against their traditions to refuse to eat with anyone they considered morally unclean. And part of the reason why tradition was so important to them was because the old covenant was all about man working his way up to God. Let me be pious. Let me be holy. Let me earn my way, my acceptance of God. Let me earn my way into the presence of God by being the best possible person I can be. And Jesus in today's passage is explaining that he hasn't come to patch up and improve this old way. He hasn't come to, you know, to give a version 2.0 of how to do things like the old way, but to introduce something completely new. The old covenant focused on man's faithfulness to God. This new covenant Jesus would introduce would center on God's faithfulness to man. The old covenant would be a performance-based religion. The new covenant under Christ would be a grace-driven relationship. The old covenant consisted of animal sacrifices. The new covenant consists of God's sacrifice of his own son. The old covenant was defined by man's traditions and using these traditions to earn their way back to God. But the new covenant under Christ is defined by God in love, knowing the impossibility of us to climb our way to him, choosing out of love to come down to us. Jesus didn't come to patch up and improve an old system. Jesus came to introduce something completely new. And we see this in the language that's used throughout the scriptures. In today's passage, you see the language of new garments, new wineskins, new wine. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ezekiel 36.26, God says, I will give you a what? A new heart. And put a what? A new spirit within you. And what this means for us, what this means about God's intention for the Christian life, is that God's intention for us isn't for us to remain the same after we come to Christ. God's intention, when you come to faith, true saving faith in Christ, God's intention for you isn't to be the same person you were before, but to slap a little bit of Jesus on the side. God's intention, you know, the message of the gospel is not you have a great life now. You just need to add a little bit of Jesus on the top and then you'll really be complete. But the very fact that through the gospel, 
that the mechanics of our salvation involves the Spirit of God making us into an entirely new creation means that without Christ, it's not that we just lack a little bit. It's not that our life is you know, lacking a little bit more, like, like lacking in fulfillment. But what it means is that without Christ, we are nothing. Without Christ, we have nothing. If it, was, if it meant anything else, it would mean that Jesus wouldn't have focused on bringing in the new covenant. If Jesus was just a supplement that we add on to our life, then the old didn't need to be replaced. Jesus could have just come, patched up the old, fixed it up, improved it a little bit, and that would have been enough. But it wasn't. And so for Christians under the new covenant, God's intention for us is to become entirely new creatures. He gives us a new heart with a new spirit, a new mind that is kingdom-focused, marching to the authority of a new king, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're not called to live a Christian life that is Jesus plus, but Jesus is everything to the Christian life. And that's how today's passage ends. They ask Jesus about fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus ends with these two really bizarre analogies about wineskins and garments that represent the old and the new covenant. And so in terms of what we can take away from these five verses, um, I'm going to share two observations in the so what section of this sermon. Um, the first observation I want to make is that fasting is a very powerful way to draw our attention to God. When we look at this passage, uh, there, there's, there, there are people that kind of make the mistake of misinterpreting uh, what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not opposed to fasting here. We're in the new covenant, have a restored relationship with God by grace through faith. And some people kind of then reach the conclusion, okay, because Jesus has done everything, he's saved us, he's the author of our salvation, the sustainer and completer of our salvation, I don't need to fast. Uh, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. And in fact, he explains in verse 20 that after he is physically gone, after he's snatched away, he's arrested, tortured, crucified, rises again and ascends into heaven, there's going to come a day when his followers are going to need to fast. And that's the time that we're in today. Because Jesus has risen again. He has ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for his people through prayer. Now is the time for us to fast. And so whilst fasting isn't mandatory, it's not. You don't, you know, if you don't fast, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Uh, but it is helpful. Fasting is a helpful tradition to participate in because what it does is it allows you to kind of recharge your batteries and renew your focus on eternity. It allows you to realign and draw your attention back on God. And fasting, you know, like in the Old Testament, fasting was done with food. Uh, fasting doesn't necessarily need to be done with food. Uh, maybe you want to hit two birds with one stone and you need to lose a bit of weight like me. Maybe fasting food will be the way to go. But fasting doesn't need to be done with food. But fasting in its essence is the stripping away of anything that distracts us, slows us down, or diverts our attention away from the king. Uh, Nathan read Hebrews 12 earlier. We, we, we read it at camp as well. 
And I believe that this verse encourages us not, not just to lay aside our sins, but the verse tells us to lay aside every weight that clings to us, anything that slows you down, that clings to you, lay it aside. And for a lot of people, it's not going to be food. I think for me, it is food because I love my Maccas. Uh, but for some people, it might be technology. They might, you might want to undergo a technology fast where you choose for a couple of hours a day or maybe even for a couple of days to fast the use of your phones, your computers, or if you like Netflix, your TV. Maybe spend 24 hours not using any technology and just getting alone with God in his word, prayerfully asking him, praying to the Father, can you renew my heart? Can you realign and fine-tune my heart again so that it's aligned with yours? Can you help realign the lenses of my sight so that when I look out upon the world, I see it the way you see it? Now, some people will try to fast and use fasting as a tendency to get what they want from God. Um, they'll see fasting and in prayer as a means of getting God to do what it is that they want him to do. Uh, and they'll really punish their bodies in the hope that God will hear their petitions and answer supernaturally. However, I find... Uh, that prayerfully fasting, it's a process that, if anything, changes you rather than changes God. And the purpose of fasting, I find, isn't to punish the body or to try and, you know, like a kid, try and like convince God to give you what you want. But the purpose of fasting, at its core, the purpose is to deepen your fellowship with God in a way that you otherwise might not be able to experience. Because fasting is a powerful way to draw our attention to God because it strips away everything in this world that distracts or diverts our attention away from Him. So point number one, fasting is a powerful way to draw our attention to God. Uh, if you've never fasted before, I encourage you, maybe even during a like your next holiday, just dedicate one day to some form of fasting, whether it's food or technology. The second point, uh, and the point I want to conclude on, is that, and this might sound cliche, but Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. When we look to the gospel and the mission of Jesus, we see in today's passage that the purpose of Jesus' mission wasn't to patch up and fix the old ways, but to introduce something new, introduce a new covenant. But the purpose of the two analogies in today's passage about the wineskins and the garments, the purpose wasn't just to devise a creative, poetic way of explaining old covenant and new covenants. But the purpose of these analogies was for Jesus to issue a warning because if you read it again, you'll realize it's actually a warning about the dangers of mixing the old way and the new way of doing things. Now, for those of us that follow Jesus and have followed him for a while, we know that you know um, the, the means of God's acceptance of us, it's not dependent on our performance. 
We know that God accepts us based on the currency of grace. We know that salvation is all about trusting in God's faithfulness and not our own faithfulness. And that's easy to accept in theory. Uh, but I think if you're honest with yourselves and you look at your own life, you, you will acknowledge that this is easy in theory, but quite difficult to live out in practice. And it's difficult, I think, because the devil is a master, a master at leveraging our shame, leveraging our sin to trick us into thinking that maybe God's grace isn't enough. Trick us into thinking that maybe, just maybe, Jesus isn't enough. That maybe on top of Jesus, I need to supplement it with something to really make it complete. Maybe add a little bit of my performance, just a, just a fraction, to make myself truly acceptable to God and loved by him. And if you ever read through uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian church in Galatians, uh, you'll see that Paul warns against this type of thinking. Paul, if you ever read through Galatians, it's like one of the most brutal letters in the New Testament. Uh, Paul doesn't hold back. He calls this type of thinking a false gospel. And he goes as far as to say that anyone that propagates or teaches this kind of a gospel, that you just need to add, like even like, add a little bit on top of what Jesus has done, he says, I don't care who teaches this. I don't care if they're an angel of the Lord. They can go, and the Greek word is anathema, which literally means they can go kill themselves. Paul warns the Christians in Galatia about this kind of thinking because he was aware of what the ramifications would be. The gospel calls us to a place of complete trust and hope in the person and work of Christ. And the devil, what the devil will try to do is trick you into thinking that, okay, you know what, what, what Christ has done is good, but you know what, you screwed up too many times that maybe you need to supplement what Christ has done with a little bit of your own holiness. 99% of Christ and maybe add a bit, 1% more of your own work. But the problem with that is if you're trusting 99% in Christ and 1% in yourself, you're no longer totally trusting in Christ anymore, are you? We're called to believe by faith that what Jesus has done is enough. As he hung on the cross, Jesus' final words were what? It is finished. It's done. Not 99% done and Jay, you know, later down the track when you're 36-year-old, maybe maybe do like that 1% extra that I missed. But he says, it's done. It's finished. It's over. The work of salvation is complete. All you need to do now is trust in me by faith. And like I said, we know this in theory. We grew up hearing this at church, week in, week out. If you grew up in the church, this is what you heard, that Jesus is enough. And while this, in theory, is easy to accept in practice, like I said, Satan is such a master deceiver. And you know, don't feel bad if you've fallen to his lies a few times. He's been doing this since the beginning of time. He did it with our first parents, Adam and Eve. He leverages our shame, the shame we feel about our sins, to make us think that maybe grace isn't enough. Maybe 
Jesus isn't enough. Maybe you need to mix a little bit of the old covenant on top of the new covenant that Jesus has introduced. Maybe you need Jesus plus a little bit of yourself. And if you do that, maybe you have an airtight solution for God to accept you and love you always. But Jesus warns us in today's passage through these two analogies that if you do this, not only will the wineskin burst, you're going to lose the wineskin and you're going to lose the wine. Don't let the devil fool you or deceive you. Don't give him a foothold to leverage your sin or the shame you feel over your sins to think that Jesus isn't enough. And this is where fasting is so helpful. Because when you prayerfully fast, get alone with God and his word, what the Holy Spirit will do is that God, he'll realign and renew your heart. He'll remove the distractions and diversions that blur your vision, your spiritual vision, and he'll allow you to see truth clearly. He'll allow you to see the king and what he has done for you clearly. Now, uh, I mentioned that I'm a reformed guy. Uh, and I have many heroes of the faith that were Reformed guys. One of the greatest Reformed, you may probably know him, Martin Luther. Uh, not, not Martin Luther King, uh, the civil rights activist, but Martin Luther, he was a German monk. Um, and he wrote a letter in 1530 to a dear friend of his by the name of Jerome Weller. And he wrote this letter to Jerome because he heard that his friend was struggling. He was in a spiritual crisis, struggling with his sin. And... There were seeds of doubt that were being sown in his heart about whether Jesus would continue to accept him, that maybe God's grace isn't enough to be accepted and loved by God. And Martin Luther penned this letter. Um, people don't write like this anymore, but oh, oh, this, is, this is amazing. Um, Martin Luther wrote a long letter, but there is an excerpt where he concludes his letter by saying to Jerome, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell. Tell him this. I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, my Lord, and where he is, I shall be also. My beloved brothers and sisters at FLM, doesn't matter what changes in this world, doesn't matter what season of life that we're going through, doesn't matter what the spiritual struggle is, doesn't matter how monumental you think your sin has become over the course of time, Jesus will always, always, always be enough because Christ has inaugurated a new covenant. He hasn't patched up the old covenant. He doesn't call you to mix the old and the new together. He introduces the new covenant because he has done it all. The work of salvation is finished. And all you are called to do is repent of your sins and place your trust 100% in him. Not 99%. Don't let the devil deceive you to ever thinking that what Christ has done isn't enough. Always. It will always, until the day you die, until the day you sit will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you see the king face, face to face, it will always, always, always be enough. And that's what I want to conclude with those two points. That fasting is a powerful way to draw to God. 
And Jesus is always enough. And so in this moment, I'd like us to enter into a time of prayer. I don't know where you guys are at spiritually. I, I hope to get to go know you guys more over the course of time. Um, but if you're human, I think, if you're a descendant of Adam, which everyone is in this room, there are going to come times where you, you almost feel Satan whispering in your ear that not this time. Yeah, you've repented of these sins so many times before. It's not going to take you back this time. But the assurance that we have through the gospel and what makes the gospel good news is that he's measured it all out and paid it all out for sins past, present, and future. And so if you are spiritually struggling in this moment, I encourage you to just set your eyes back upon the king. Repent of your sins and cling to the guarantee that Jesus gives us through the cross that what he has done will always be enough no matter how much you screw up. So in this moment, let's lay it all out before the Lord and let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray.